Hello, and welcome to episode five of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are going to continue our discussion of some of Greg Egan's short fiction. We left off, well, last episode we discussed Rainmaker's Mistake, but the episode before that we left off seeming like we were going to launch into a discussion on glory, but instead I was thinking we might start this podcast off by talking about the plank dive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, now the plank dive is set in the same universe as his novel Diaspora, which is probably my favorite Greg Egan novel. Uh, everyone involved is post-human. They're all you know, various types of computer programs. And um, let's see, one community of these post-humans has decided to send copies of themselves inside the event horizon of a black hole. Uh, this is not, properly speaking, a suicide mission. What they, There are things that they hope to understand on the inside of that event horizon, even though they know they won't be able to communicate it back to their originals. Uh, they still think the exercise would be worthwhile on its own. And while they're preparing for this mission, which they call the Plank Dive, um, a father and daughter come from a community that's based closer to Earth and a community that's really focused on preserving and progressing the arts of embodied humans, of us. Classical literature, Shakespeare, uh, classic references, Homer, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The daughter of the pair is a top-notch scientific mind who has been stultified in her upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, and the father is just a... Uh, he's a straw man, I think. Is the only way <laughs> he, is. he is. He is completely. Yeah. Um, he is over the top. He says, I am going to write the story of your plank dive and don't bother me with these trivial scientific details. I'm going to to mm -hmm. assign you all motivations. And, it's going to be an epic. <laughs> right, I'm going to write your epic. And the scientists just sort of look at him like he's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, one of the scientists uh, takes a great interest in the daughter and making sure that she has, you know, that she can express herself. In the end, um, the father goes away in a huff and seems to take his daughter with him. Um, and then it turns out that there's a copy of the daughter in the the complement of the crew who's headed uh, into the black hole. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you actually get both the perspective of the, the folks who stayed behind and the perspective of the folks who do, do the dive. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the interesting thing as well that I noticed was that um, the, the journey from Athens, from the, the, the place that sort of was focused on art, was such that um, the, the time it took to get, the time it would take to return, uh, was it about 200 years would pass or so? Mm -hmm. So the, the daughter who is all um, scientific, scientifically focused is also gambling that society will have changed by the time she gets back. Right. I thought that bit was interesting. Yeah, taking advantage of the relativistic travel times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have... Sorry, no, go, go ahead. for it. No, so, um, I have to admit that my initial um, response to this story 
was, you know, yeah, this is a bit heavy handed. <laughs> but uh, we had an interesting pre-podcast discussion, which we're not going to lay before you, um, where I was given some insight into the context for this. Okay, um, so what what you have to realize is that this would have been written in the mid to late 1990s. And at that time, there was these these academic wars raging between the humanities departments and the science departments. Uh, deconstruction and postmodernism were the thing, especially in literature departments. Mm-hmm. And these ideas were starting to spread and were being spread seemingly aggressively um, by some of the professors involved. And a lot of what they were saying is everything's, or what they seemed to be saying. I, <laughs> I, I understand this is not the actual position of postmodernism. But what they seemed to be saying was everything is relative. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Even 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a, mm. a statement that can be interpreted and is you know, no more right than to say 2 plus 2 equals 5, depending on your context. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. very political. Uh, the scientific community felt very much under attack at the time. Um, I remember I was working um, in the late 90s as... I was studying physics, but I was working my way through college as the web designer for a women's studies department. So I found myself in this very uncomfortable um, situation where the the people in the women's studies department were attacking me for studying physics. They said, why? Was that that the patriarchy thing? Yeah, yeah. They literally (laughs) said, why are you selling out to the patriarchy? And I said, wait, I'm a woman in science. Aren't you supposed to be supporting me? Oh, my word. And basically, in a lot of his work around this time, Greg Egan took a very strong and... I think I say in in my book, uh, when Egan is at his most satirical, he is at his least subtle. (laughs) And he goes, whenever he's really got his dander up about something, he goes so over the top. I usually think it's hilarious. Um, (laughs) A lot of, like you say, it's, it's, no, it is heavy handed. I mean, what he's saying is that people who care only about art without understanding science are lacking something just as much as people who understand science without art mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, sorry go ahead well the, the one other thing i wanted to say was that he sets himself a very high bar and it can be debated whether or not he passes it both in this story and in almost all the fiction he writes that follows mm-hmm. where once you you leave the original community and you go with the crew that does the plank dive mm-hmm. he he tries to convey the same sense of drama and urgency and passion mm-hmm. without in any way dumbing down the science that yes. he's got these people passionate about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing you're going to see from Schild's Ladder. It's the same thing you're going to see from Incandescence. It's the same thing you're going to see from the Orthogonal Trilogy moving forward in time. And to the extent that he is or is not successful in that project is is almost a career defining statement you know mm-hmm. that he believes that this that art can function this way in tandem with science and all the people who don't think so who find this sort of gobbledygook to be boring he has absolutely no use for them <laughs> that's that's a, a very that's a very good um, point that you're making there um, I, I was going to say that <clears throat> What I, what I find particularly interesting about Egan's work and one of the things that perhaps we didn't stress 
when we were talking about it in the first um, podcast on his work is that the there is always going to be the reader who is the scientist that can fully understand what he is talking about. And they're going to get a, a level of, of thrill, enjoyment, what have you, that the non-scientist reader is going to completely miss. But in a way, in a way that's a pity because what, what some of the stories, what some of Chang's stories, for example, managed to do is um, he will give you something on different levels. So that even if you're you're not going to be able to to grasp the science and get your thrills there, he's going to give you some other little some other little tidbit, some other little um, something to appreciate that will keep you in the story. Egan is very much focused on um, he's 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 actually an evangelist of science in a he way. He is no very strongly, very strongly. Yes, and and I do think that um, to discuss his stories without talking about some of the detail of the scientific theories that he's using and, and how, how well he integrates them into the story. To not do that is, in fact, to do him a disservice. So I am warning you that for this podcast, I expect you to be able to <laughs> talk a bit more about that, even if oh. you're just you know, pointing oh. readers to... So are you saying there will be a quiz? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare. Oh, man. <laughs> not for me, <laughs> but if any else wants there to be a quiz i do understand that he has all these um things worked out formally and everything on his website he has yes. he has all the information if you want to seek it out absolutely no it's it. stunning it's stunning the amount of work he's done on his website i mean the guy only has well quote unquote only has a bachelor's degree in math that's it that's all he has ba- bachelor's <laughs> degree in math he has done phd level work he's got eighty thousand words about the orthogonal universe on his website Mm-hmm. I mean, he's mm-hmm. written a whole other book that's basically a PhD dissertation on the physics of an alternate universe. Yes, yes, and and I think I think this is very important. I I, I appreciate that it's not going to be as accessible to uh, a larger group of people, but I still I still think it's a very important thing to do. Now, the other thing I was going to say is that the context for the story to me is hugely important because the same way you can't read, say, Jonathan Swift especially some of his more heavily satirical works. You can't read those and understand or appreciate them without understanding exactly what he's satirizing. Mm, mm-hmm. So for someone to just come and, 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 and read The Plank Dive and, and not notice when it was published and not notice, not be aware of what the, the situation um, that led to it is all about, you are going to have a very, well... You're going to have a, a trivialized view of it. You're not going to give it its full credit. Yeah, and, and I feel a little bad. There's been um, there's been a, a, I don't want to call it a spat. That would be too much. There's been a dialectic, maybe? I, uh, anyway, Adam Roberts, Adam Roberts, a British SF writer and critic who is, I believe, a scholar of 19th century literature as his day job, um, he wrote a review of Egan's, I believe it was Incandescence. Um, Egan, it's the only review Egan has ever publicly responded to. He was so pissed off about it. Mm-hmm. And if you were to read the Plank Dive and think, oh, he's talking about people like Adam Roberts, that would be wrong. That would not be right at all. And, and it would be insulting 
to um, it would misunderstand the story and it would be in- very very insulting to Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and and you have to understand that debate didn't happen until say t- gosh twenty oh eight, and okay. this story was written in the nineties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know, it's yeah. I hope people no one would think that that Egan was talking about specific people in the science fiction community. He was really talking about a, a specific movement within academia. And I have to say, I, I too encountered the edges of that movement when I was reading papers from that era, um, later in my work later on. And <laughs> it really did get a bit extreme. Mm-hmm. As you said, I think that there are, there's kind of moderate <laughs> for the particular areas and subjects where on the fringes, if you want to call it that, what is reading, for example, systematic theology, that frankly made no sense whatsoever. So when I thinking, but they come from reputation, have qualifications, how is this possible? At this point, it might be worth bringing up the Sokol named Alan Sokol. And he, uh, he gibberish and gobbledygook, and he <laughs> and he sent it to the leading issue, and they published it, breaking interdisciplinary work, and they broadcast every media outlet he could find. We know intellectual, they're realistic in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Yes, and and to tell the yeah, yeah. You know, there were some from what some of the intellectual matters. Who does the cover doing it? Because a lot of what do you expect to find? And what do you expect to find? What they expect to find because that's what will. I hope I mentioned this before. I, my background is history. When you look at groups, that fact of but not to the extent of extreme postmodernism might not equal four because I'm. <laughs> yes. Again, the conversation had happened um, that some. Good point. Yes. Uh, whereas, especially. Departments were feeling kind of under attack. <laughs> want any of your insights then? <laughs> so we take all this into context, and suddenly we have seen people like that writing papers. Prospero is understated <laughs> trade in um, Egan's. My oh my god! <laughs> One of my favorite bits of Terranesia is when he. <laughs> In a Canadian university. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> so, it lays out. It's really striking to a line in the sand that he has since found. Yes, yes. But also to me, a pet peeve of his. Worris- worrisome is far too strong a term. Ability to tell a story in a certain way. Mm-hmm. That makes me what I mean by art as a religion. 
in Oceanic and in Oracle. He operating on faith, operating on this extreme art or extreme said, I begin to feel as if it's the same situation you just described, where there were lessons to be learned by the scientific community from postmodernism, but because it was pushed at them in such an extreme fashion, they shut down completely. So sometimes I'm reading some of Egan's other work, other other works, I'm thinking to myself, you you've really drawn a line in the sand here. And and it becomes very much a black and white issue as opposed to something more nuanced. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that and that does become a bit mm, a bit a bit worrying to me. And I think that's where the characters begin to turn into straw men, where the 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 leaps in logic. I see leaps of, in logic in the soft sciences when he's portraying aspects of psychology and sociology. My suspension of disbelief fails because I think to myself, wait, you're you're saying that this is so, and therefore that is a consequence, but I don't see that. And then there's this gulf in between. And I think to myself, well, if I'm considering it from your point of view, I see how you made that leap. But in the sense of both real world sense as well as narrative sense, it's more of a stretch. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I distinguish between real world sense and narrative sense because in narrative sense, you're accustomed to making leaps. Right. You right. make leaps for the sake of the story. <laughs> In this, you also have to be aware that interest can't be sacrificed. Aspects of what you have going on in your story. Would be words leading, yeah. <laughs> Talk about Gory? Because I know you had that issue with Gory. Uh, I actually had to ask you who have come to excavations civilization that was based on that planet well they basically took mathematics to the The big crunch were were as as a unity i thought was fantastic but that the reason solved everything worth solving right that when the discovery that to hide it in order to for a bit longer there there was a type of society they called space travel and exploration and colonizing natural conclusion and 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 that spreaders will eventually solved too much and they start to stop because well, they would have to push back again so they would not be tempted to and fail to fight back in the context of that one story but of his far future you have the full context give me some All, it's basically galaxy span lots of people you know are were originally other aliens and everyone's kind of working there there's also a two scientists have come or mathematicians basically our level of technology state politics right our level of violence basically they they come and there's no no they they come in and say hi 
of course, two, they or standoff, and one even in balanced, right? Is asked, well, you know, is it this kind of this kind of violence is ridiculous in terms of just the logistics of look at your phase of history and so other parts of the amount of gory i think kind of rejects so i i didn't read that as earth-like culture had proposed uh-huh discovers these theorems that on this planet before the current civilization to Joan, our viewpoint, of fighter jets, or most of the presentation. Glory starts with three pages, beautifully pointless. A post-human from point A stunningly I, I just <laughs> of stellar dynamic information through a star and making it your on a moon or <laughs> <laughs> engineering right mm-hmm. at the present this information and now the physical yes. and Joan thinks up a and says I could recover this information now. no I cut to the end that in the process just jumping ahead to the end feels like cheating the journey is as important as the destination and that's borne out by several other of Egan's amalgam stories mm-hmm. and okay and what if I were to rename the spreader and the seeker as Dionysian and and Apollonian? That still loses me a bit, I'm afraid. Well, Egan presents. So you know the the Dionysian Apollonian dichotomy. Well, I I know the names, but I don't think I know enough of the background to get a full grasp of where you're coming from. Okay, so Dionysian is very exuberant. It's very excessive. It's very visceral. It's Mm -hmm. it's a a society that um, revolves around, and again, this is over-the-top descriptions, but it's hedonistic. It's uh, sensual. It's Mm -hmm. your rave party culture, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Apollonian is... A lot of people describe it as having the same level of passion, but all turned inward to... Very cerebral. Yeah, very cerebral. Very intensely intellectual pursuits. Egan is Apollonian. All his mm-hmm. fiction is. Mm-hmm. He, he almost entirely rejects, or just doesn't even address, um, physical, sensual pleasures. It's one of the reasons why post-humanity, you know, disembodied futures fit so so easily in his fiction. Mm-hmm. And I see their culture, the, especially the amalgam, as being intensely Apollonian, at which point, why deny yourself the pleasure of the seeking of the journey? I see, I see. Wow, so you're, I think you're I need saying- to rewrite my book now. <laughs> Then this has been a useful exercise. Except <laughs> that it's due in October. <laughs> oh, you know, footnotes. Footnotes are great. <laughs> well, I I guess I can I can see where you're coming from. I I suppose the bit that Im- impacted more on my memory 
was this concept of, oh, you know, it's also going to give us sort of motivation to still be a vibrant society when those spreaders come to, come into our vicinity. Yeah, see, my, my take is that the whole spreaders thing is, like, I don't even pay attention to it because right. the amalgam has solved that problem. It, okay. It's been demonstrated in other stories that that's just so so not an issue. Now, you see, this, this is an, another example of context because since the short stories are themselves cited within a universe that has been explained in other short stories and in novels... You, you really do miss a lot if you don't have that background as well. Yeah, I'd never even thought about that because, it, I mean, it seems to stand on its own, but but now that I'm... Different, different hearing, interpretations come yeah, out. Now yeah, now that I'm hearing your reading of it, I'm like, no, within the context of that story, I think you're absolutely right. That he doesn't, you know, unless you're familiar with the rest of the amalgam, you're going to not read it the way I did. Hmm, this is, this is fascinating. Okay, okay. By the way, the Amalgam is one of the only actually named um, scenarios in Egan's fiction where he does have a common setting in which several stories are told. Okay. Other times you can kind of make a connection. Um, the Shield's Ladder story is like a little bit before the Amalgam's formed. You could kind of hand wave it in Diaspora is kind of before that. But officially Amalgam is one of the only settings that he has that's actually common. Well, it, it makes sense for him to have uh, a pocket universe for everything to fit into because, in a way, everything is so much science-based Right. that it's not as if you're going to have another place that's wildly different. Well, except then he did the orthogonal universe, which is another place that's wildly <laughs> different. <laughs> but, but you see, even that, you could say, is, well, we better say multiverse instead of universe then. Right, right. But, but yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I see your point. Yes. So Glory, it, it's, I have to admit, part of me just wanted you to love it, and I understand why you don't, <laughs> but Glory has a special place in my heart, because I think it's what made me a science fiction critic. It's certainly what made me an Egan scholar, mm-hmm. um, was when I read that and sort of put a bunch of pieces together and went, ah, I see what he's doing there. So it sounds as if Glory is best as... Not an appetizer, but in a sense as a dessert after having taken in some of the other stories and novels connected with this universe. That's probably fair. And basically, I think Glory is a kind of capstone to the first decade of the 21st century for him. Okay. Um, uh, Especially taking um, Shield's Ladder and Incandescence together and then Riding the Crocodile is a novelette or a novella that's set in the same universe. Okay, that is actually a new title. I hadn't heard of that one. Oh, Riding the Crocodile. It's, um, yeah, it's only been collected. I don't remember where, where it was originally published. Okay. okay. But it's, a, it's another lovely, well, I think lovely story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's another amalgam story. And I think Glory is a, a beautiful capstone to that, but it doesn't really extend out to the orthogonal universe, which has been, you know, this decade. Okay, okay. Well, okay, you have you have explained the background to Glory, and I'm very much willing to concede your point on that. Well, no, so but, but... I'm, I'm going to give you another example, if I may. Please do. <laughs> Let's look at um, Singleton. <clears throat> okay, Singleton. Singleton. And to a certain extent, Oracle. Mm-hmm. Well, let's the- see. One thing that we should note is that Oracle came first, and Singleton is a f- prequel. Right. 
Okay. Which is, the, again, one of the only times Egan has done that. Also, Oracle is the only time, that in to my knowledge, that Egan has forayed into historical fiction. Okay. Okay. Historical fiction? Would you classify that as historical? Hmm... Well, okay, so let's let's lay out that Oracle is basically a lightly fiction a it's I'd describe it as a intellectual cage match between a lightly fictionalized <laughs> Alan Turing and a lightly fictionalized C.S. Lewis. Well, I guess I guess the reason why I hesitate to call it historical is that the footnote at the end, he's basically given what, one, two references? Yeah. And and when I think historical fiction, I think intensely researched. Yes. <laughs> yeah, not so much. at least at least more references than that. Because <laughs> you you have one or two references and now I should point out I'm not a Lewis scholar myself, mm-hmm. but I've I've had occasion to butt up against both his fiction and his nonfiction. And the funny thing about Lewis, and I know that a lot of there are a good few writers who are not a fan of Lewis's work, nor his stance and so forth. But the funny thing about Lewis is that you have to be careful where in his life or his journey you encounter him. Mm. Because there are definitely, definitely writings of his that will make you pull your hair out and wonder <laughs> if the man's thinking and want to smack him. But there are also later writings and and works that you kind of go, oh, whoa, you changed. <laughs> <laughs> So I see, I see sometimes a, a one reference or a two reference thing. And I think to myself, did you encounter something that was, you, you, well, it can go either way. Either you can encounter somebody who's basically doing a, oh, he was brilliant. This was fantastic. Or you might encounter somebody who's, oh, yeah, I'm going to just like tear him down completely. So when he said there was this one reference, I was like, hmm, Whenever I come across a reference that appears to be too much in one direction, I almost purposely go out and seek something that seems to be in the other direction. Yeah. Or at the very least, and sometimes this is more helpful, but sometimes time is not on your side, you try to find somebody who is as far away chronologically from the actual person. Historians sometimes are not very good at assessing people who are too close to their own contemporary era. Mm-hmm. And and I say that again, both in terms of the positive and the negative. So you have some books that are written in, in gushing, glowing detail about someone who is barely remembered now as being seen. <laughs> and then you have people who didn't even rate a biography, you know, within 50 years of, of their death. But by the time a historian comes along and sees what, you know, little work here, a little unpublished thing that was there, suddenly it blows up in significance. You know, I was so, just reading something the the other day that pointed out that, for instance, uh, some Italian Renaissance artists that we think of as hugely dominant now were basically unknown. They had, their paintings were locked up in someone's attic for yeah. a couple hundred years and go, oh, well, that was just a nobody. The art world is really vicious that way, isn't it? You can't <laughs> starve to death after hacking off your ear. <laughs> And then, you know, 100 years later, it's like your painting sells for like millions. And- right, right. The Getty Museum is bidding on it. And yeah, <laughs> it's cruel, I tell you. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm slightly off tangent. But that's why I challenge the term historical fiction. But I understand what you're saying there in the sense that he does have a Turing and a Lewis. And he's using them to make a point. So they're slightly straw manish. 
Uh-huh. Well, and actually, I went and read, because Egan referenced that particular book on Turing, I went and read it, and I think lightly fictionalized is generous. <laughs> There's no way that the Turing of historical reality could ever be that with it or eloquent or socially aware as the, as the Turing in, as uh, Robert Stoney in that story. And, and conversely, um, when I read about, you know, whatever you say about Lewis, he seems to have had friends and he seems to be very well liked, mm-hmm. which is what this particular character is like. This, this, this character in there, he's, he's um, just sort of a blinker, dogmatic, um, sort of unpleasantly evangelical about his point of view in, in some respects. Right, right. And I actually did consult a couple Lewis scholars um, about this story because as part of my research for the book, and they're like, okay, all the historical facts are basically correct, but wow, the arguments that, that Stoney tries to present to Lewis would never have worked. That's exactly <laughs> the wrong way to try and persuade Lewis, uh, uh, you know, to abandon his point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, good, because that brings me to my example. Um, sorry, we've just described... We just described Oracle, but we should be talking about Singleton. But Singleton as well um, has a... Well, it's, it's, it's based on the power of a meaningful single choice. Mm-hmm. So we have multiple universes theory, and I, I'm actually going to hand over to you at this point, ah. so you can tie in what happens with both Oracle and Singleton that very much relies on this idea. Okay, so some people worry about, you know, becoming post-human and they worry about losing bodies or, you know, uh, not being able to play football anymore or something like that. When Egan thinks about uploading our brains into computers, he's not at all worried about that. He's worried about the multiple worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which says that a quantum computer... Uh, works by basically running every branch of a computation simultaneously. And so that every choice you make, every every branch point of the universe, all paths are taken. And you mm-hmm. just find yourself in one branch of that whole infinite number of possible universes. Yeah. And um, in Singleton, he has one character who becomes obsessed, like so many science fictional and particularly Egan uh, narrators <laughs> are, obsessed with this idea that that for every time he makes the right choice, there are other versions of him that are making wrong choices. <laughs> and that it's just all down to luck more than, more than anything else. And so he develops a quantum computer that is shielded in such a way that when it makes a choice, that is the only choice that it makes. Um, mm-hmm. It never branches. Now, the world is still um, multiple worlds. And at this point, I should I should mention that multiple worlds interpretation is not the dominant interpretation of the quantum waveform collapse in quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Copenhagen is the dominant one, which more or less says that there's something else going on when something, dis- you know, there's a moment when the quantum waveform collapses. It be- While it could previously have been A or B, we observe it. Now it's only A or only B. Multiple mm-hmm. worlds says that we may see A, but another world sees B. Copenhagen mm-hmm. basically says, no, no, now it's only A, and there's something that happens that, that makes it be only A that time. Okay. Um, okay. So, multiple worlds is not actually the do- dominant interpretation, but it is 
there's nothing in quantum mechanics that rules it out, mm-hmm. which makes mm-hmm. it a whole ton of fun to play with, and scientists love <laughs> <course>. playing with <laughs> it. Yes. Okay, so that's quantum multiple worlds, and I should strongly recommend, if anybody's really curious about quantum mechanics, a great intro book is um, How to Explain Physics to Your Dog <laughs> by Chad Orzel. So- who, Sounds like I need to run out and buy that one. Oh my god, it's so great! And it's available as an ebook, and I loved it. I just read it a couple years ago. Actually, mm-hmm. I think I read it last year. Uh, it's also Chad Orzel is Kate Nepvu's husband, and people may know Kate from her writing on oh, Tor.com. Cool. And when I found out they were a couple, mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my god, that's so perfect! <laughs> a new level of fangirling. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I was like, now I'm a fan of both of them. Um, Excellent. So anyway, it's very very well written, and it, it works through these these odd oddities very very well. Okay, so in Singleton, this obsessive guy, uh, and he he pursues this project. His wife kind of tags along, while well, she's doing her own thing most of the time. But he designs this computer that is shielded against these quantum branchings. They make an AI out of it, and they actually make a child out of it. And the same way as uh, Ted Chang's life cycle of softer objects that we've talked about before, um, it's a child, it's an AI that is raised as a child. So mm-hmm. it starts out in very infantile, it can't really control its body, and then it grow. it matures very much like a human, uh, a human intellectual progression. Um, at a certain point, that child rebels, runs away, gets... And makes some bad choices. Makes some very, very bad <laughs> choices. A little bit mildly, yeah. Uh, and has to be rescued. And then um, as she's recovering from that, um, she basically says, you know what, okay, I, I understand what I am now, and and I think this is worthwhile. And I want to kind of spread this... You know, she what she said is all... All of humanity has always operated under the illusion that our choices matter. And for me, it's actually true. And I want to make that not be an illusion for more people. Right. And then that sort of ties in. And the Helen from Singleton, who's the AI kid, is obviously the person giving uh, Alan Turing, or sorry, Robert Stoney in Oracle, all his... um, sort of, again, shortcuts, uh, sneak mm-hmm. peeks into the future so that his 20th century won't develop the way our 20th century did. Yeah, yeah. Now, you have beautifully outlined my exact problem with mm-hmm. the story. How do we go from, uh, our, we operate under the illusion that our choices matter, to our choices will only matter if they're single choices? Walk me through that. <laughs> I'm not seeing it. Okay. Basically, she's she's saying that um, her choices do matter. Correct? Right. And they matter because she's shielded from the quantum branching. Right. So what that's telling me is that the the whole the whole the whole idea is based on the on, on this on the sense that if you are participating in this quantum branching and there are other versions of you who are making all the possible choices in the world that could be made then your own choice is in some sense meaningless because it's just one of a whole bunch of randoms that that had to happen for the, the full play of randoms to be expressed 
best. Right, right. That it feels like instead of weighing the options and making an intelligent choice, you're, you're just one roll of the dice. Precisely. So I will, I will, in fact, tie this back to an earlier story, Closer, okay. where I, I had a problem, as I said, with the idea that when the couple became, in a sense, identical then there was this decision of, well, we know each other, we know how we think, we know how to be, what we know who we are, each other. And now there's no challenge, there's no interest. And I said, well, you know, if they just like waited. Yeah, just waiting here, you're Exactly. So again, I'm thinking to myself, well, these multiple versions of you in these in this multiverse, the moment they do make another decision, they're not you anymore, are they? Right. Because it's, it's almost like, again, like identical twins, you know, you, you start off identical and immediately you start having different experiences. And as a result of those experiences, making different choices that again lead to different experiences and, and on and on and on. And, and therefore, I didn't quite see it as there is one you and then there are these random choices that are made in effect meaningless because you're given the full range of what could have happened. I more looked at it as there are several versions, there are, there are several yous, there are several yous that eventually are no longer you because they simply didn't make this, didn't do the same path as you did. Well, but you can you can see his point that, that there's got to be a cluster of you that's very close to the you are now. Then who, who who is the you that you are now? Basically, you're one of the randoms making a decision. Right. The rest of the right. Well, and his his point is he doesn't want to be one of the randoms making a decision. He wants to only be him, no matter what scenario he's in. Well, it's it's interesting because you could flip it and say, what right do you have to restrict the the experience that those other randoms will have? And you just nailed the plot of quarantine. Oh, shut <laughs> up. <laughs> Okay, no, that's hilarious, because in Quarantine, which was his first science fiction novel in 1992, um, mm-hmm. he, he again plays with the idea of the quantum waveform collapse, and okay. he plays with the interpretation, he admits this is like, he does not believe this interpretation is true, he just loved the fictional possibilities of it. He played with the idea that there's something unique about human consciousness that allows the waveform to collapse, but that in the rest of the universe... The waveforms don't collapse. All the potentials exist in a kind of simultaneous soup, and it's a much richer and more diverse experience and environment out there that feel that um, that perceives the human ability to collapse the quantum waveform as a threat. <laughs> and so they enclose us in this like space-time bubble. Uh-huh. <laughs> and okay, he wrote that I- back in 1992. Uh, this is this is this is hugely amusing. I'm serious. Okay, then then I withdraw because by giving me again more context into his work, I can appreciate that he has seen the the different challenges, the different options that one particular. Well, well, this this is why I don't understand because this is what I mean by. This is what I mean by a challenge to my suspension of disbelief. Because for some reason, the particular batch of stories that we have (laughs) reinforce a particular view that has led me to believe, no, 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 as an author, this must be his view. Because look, it's come up in all these different stories. But of course, I have a drop in the bucket and and you've actually sampled the entire bucket. And you're (laughs) 
at me straight on these things, but it's quite unfortunate. But no, but you're right. In the context of any single story, all your readings make perfect sense. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, if I didn't know about X, Y, and Z, then... <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Do you know what would have probably helped me just a tiny bit? I would have needed in those stories, in all of those stories, for one of those protagonists—not not, not even two—just one of those protagonists to be a little less dogmatic, to be a little less certain. Yeah. I. I. What did you think about the interplay between? Oh, what was was it? Still a Martin? No, it was Ben in uh, Singleton. Ben and Francine. Um. Francine, by the way, was the wife. Yes, yes. I, I actually remember that one. <laughs> no, no, I was just explaining to the reader, uh, listeners. Oh, well, yeah. I, oh, them. I, there were a lot of stories, and I'm I'm not ashamed to admit that I may have let a name or two slip my memory, so I, I needed it as much as, as the listeners did. Um, I think I actually found that the best thing about Singleton for me was the interaction between them, and as characters, I thought that they worked very well. It sounds a bit ironic, considering what we've said before about Egan and characterization and so forth. Mm-hmm. Say that in this one, it was the science that I was annoyed at and the characters <laughs> really loved. I did think the characterization worked particularly well in, in Singleton. Uh, it did. It really did. So, and I have to admit, um, between, and again, Singleton's a very long story. I don't know if it's novelette or novella off the top of my head, but... Um, you know, it, it covers their whole lives from when they met in college, and um, and she they they have a they conceive a child, and she miscarries, and then they decide to have this AI baby. And I think I read Singleton in my third trimester of pregnancy, <laughs> and because yeah. I know I read t- the last, the most recent, two most recent. Greg Egan short stories I read while I was in the hospital the night before they induced labor. <laughs> because by God, I was going to finish reading every Egan short story before Gavin was born. But the scene where the baby's, the AI is about to be downloaded, which is essentially the baby's about to be born. Yes. And they're going through the doubts and should we put it off? Should we stop it? No, no, we have to let this happen. And I, I don't know if I'm ready. And <laughs> and the way Francine was when the baby finally is animated, mm-hmm. oh, I was in tears. Yeah, I was I thought, literally I thought in it was tears. Really well done. I did. I did. And and to me, this is I guess this is what I'm finding almost frustrating about Egan because um they're not even his weaknesses are not consistent. <laughs> Just like I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, people and, say Egan's such so bad at characterization. I'm like, oh, but what about this person? Yes, it's 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 very it's a challenge, and it's a challenge because I've been trying to appreciate, or or shall we say, get a grasp of what makes the short story. And I've heard people say, well, the short story you have a big idea, and and that that is that is what you're focusing on. So I've taken that to mean that sometimes when you're doing a short story, you are purposely simplifying, shall we even say, oversimplifying certain things. Right, right. So there are things, there are things that you drop. There are things that, that you're going to say to people, you know what, you're with me for a very short time, so you're going to have to, you know, really just sort of overlook a couple of things here because we're, we're, we have to get to our destination fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. But at the same time... 
at the same time, there still seems to be a bit of a stumbling block for me. And the stumbling block comes at different points. So sometimes it's because it's a straw man. Sometimes it's because I don't fully believe the philosophy behind it. Then I hear from you, but oh, but in this other story, the philosophy is completely turned on its head. I'm like, oh, okay. So he did see that there was a, there was a, I shouldn't say a problem, but that there were, there was more than one way of viewing this particular philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you give me context with the other stories in the universe to give background to things. And I begin to realize that I can give him a lot more credit than I was previously giving him. But my word, you really practically have to read his entire corpus, don't you? And uh, yeah, wow. And yeah, maybe so. <laughs> maybe, and and the thing is, as I've been, you know, doing all this, this Egan work, and I, I've been keeping my eye out on reviews that, that people have written of his stories and his, his fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and so often they'll be down on, on something and I'll, some aspect of the story and I'll be like well but yeah but you know what about this other thing and what about this other thing and it's like and again it's actually hard for me to remember a single story without the context he's not a standalone author he I, simply isn't yeah I think he isn't now Chang is the perfect standalone author right right now all of his stories are so different from each other but, yeah. but Egan no <laughs> the interesting thing is I think he's evolved that way. I there. I think you might remember from the last podcast, I named three stories that are absolutely critical that we're not discussing because they're not available online. Right. Um, and they're all from earlier in his career. And it's Learning to Be Me, Axiomatic, and Reasons to Be Cheerful. Yes. And those, I believe, stand on their own a lot, <laughs> a lot more neatly than the ones we've been talking about. My goodness. Although you, apparently I am not a good source for that <laughs> idea. But do you know what this is starting to feel like for me? It's like when, don't laugh, but it's like when Deep Space Nine first started to air. I'm trying not to laugh. Good. Keep it that way. So <laughs> previously you'd had your next generation, which is episodic, you know, mm-hmm. things wrap up in an episode. Maybe you have a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. Arc, but but you know you can go away and come back to it and you don't get lost. Deep Space Nine completely different. So right, right. you got to know what's going on. That was actually a time in my life where I was traveling a lot, went overseas to some studies, whatever. So even if I traveled somewhere and they were showing Deep Space Nine, it was pretty much a guarantee that they were showing a different season from the one I left. Mm. So so I kind of just I kind of just zoned out after a while, and I began to appreciate from that experience, why there are people who simply cannot get the same level of enjoyment that you do out of certain, say, standalone episodes of of, um, Star Trek. Because you've got the whole universe in your head. You've got all the characters, you've got all the the, the lifetimes and and the various bits of history and who did what and which era and so forth. And any episode that then comes along is never truly standalone because it always references those things in a way that give you that extra little thrill. Because we we love things that refer to themselves in a way. You you're almost you're almost it's an in joke. Yeah, yeah, it's a reward to the an extra reward to the the diehard fan. So 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 Egan's done this thing where you're getting an extra reward if you know more of his work, which is very clever in a commercial sense. I, I don't think I don't. I don't think he's doing it on purpose. 
<laughs> yes, I don't think he is. I'm not accusing him of that, but but I am seeing I'm seeing how it happens. I'm seeing how it happens. Yeah, yeah. And okay, so we should talk about Oceanic before we before we wrap up, and we, we should wrap up in the next uh, 10, 15 minutes at least. Um, and here's a piece of context that you desperately need to know to understand Oceanic. Let me hear it. Um, so. <laughs> The first part of Oceanic is where Martin and his brother Daniel are talking about God, and then Daniel sort of inducts Martin into this um, more serious religious experience. Mm -hmm. And Martin's maybe 10, and his brother's a teenager, and uh, he's always looked up to his older brother, etc., etc. That's autobiographical. And Egan's mm. actually written an autobiographical essay. It's one of his only autobiographical essays. It's one of the only things that I actually know about his youth. And he had an older brother, and his older brother got into a particular Catholic cult. Uh, they'd been raised as kind of casual Anglicans. His brother became uh, this more serious kind of Catholic, and in... Um, they shared a room and they were talking about it and Greg was young and and his brother was like oh yeah if you accept Jesus Christ into your heart and and Egan actually was a die hard believer mm-hmm. through most of his high school mm-hmm. and he actually mm-hmm. talks about you know how good it felt to have that faith how good it felt to have that belief with him mm-hmm. you know at all, all the time and then he talks about have just kind of wandering away from it when he was in college Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's now in his autobiographical essay. The end is a denouement. It's not um, it's not as intense as the emotional journey that Martin goes on in Oceanic. Yes, mm-hmm. um, which I suspect is because Egan lives a much less dramatic life than a fictional character, <laughs> and, and I hope that's true. Darn it, we all do. <laughs> yes, may we all live less less dramatic lives. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important to understand that that first bit actually comes from a core of of real religious experience which Mm. is important to credit him with because since we all know Egan as a diehard almost evangelical atheist Mm -hmm. it can it might otherwise seem I don't know maybe patronizing or condescending Right, right right yes um, and, 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 and it's good to have that context. I'm actually going to go out of my way not to address it directly for the simple reason that this is another bit of my background, which is sociology of religion. And there are different types of experiences of religious ecstasy of which the, um, the particular group that you described and the particular approach that you described um, it's just one. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, I'm I'm almost holding back from delving into more detailed explanation of this because it is going to trigger my nasty academic side. <laughs> the one that wants to fling references at you and get really detailed, and we don't have enough time for that in ten minutes. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But also because I think that there's something very interesting I found within the narrative itself which is quite separate from what his own personal experience would have been. And I want to stress separate from what his own personal experience would have been because I'm not saying this has anything to do with him personally. Right, right. What I found fascinating was um, the that the religious experience aspect 
also mirrored the protagonist's experience with sex or love. Right, right. And what I what I mean to to there there's in addition to the overall arc, which is about his having this intense religious experience, which he then discovers has a chemical biological foundation to it that is in fact completely divorced as to whether or not the the source of the feelings is factual or, or real or true. But in addition to that, there's a, a sort of a scene in the middle where he has his first sexual experience. And this is this is no ordinary sex. No, this, this is sci-fi sex, which means that... Let me see if I get it straight. The, the expression is called a bridge. And what happens is that he... He gains, he gains a vagina, and she grows a penis. She takes his penis, and he she gets takes a vagina. Penis and he gets a vagina. Yeah. Yes. So there's this, there's this sort of actual biological swap. Right. And so it's, it's something that is portrayed in a way that's very important in the way it's portrayed because you get the, the sense that this is something that's almost irreversible. It's extreme. It's something that you wouldn't do lightly. Except that they do reverse it. They do reverse it. But it's unpleasant and, and definitely has consequences. <laughs> yes. So so you get this impression, as I said, that and, and in a way it's it's brilliantly done because it's it's not it it, it kind of ups the ante on the concept of sex by making it I don't want to say more meaningful, but maybe more dramatic. Or more more consequence filled in a sense. So when he goes into it, he's still very much in his charismatic religious mode where marriage is a commitment to one person forever and ever, amen. But he doesn't realize that the girl he's encountered is very much of a, yeah, yeah, you know, casual thing. So he goes through the experience and then she's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to hang around. And he's like, what? Yeah, he's like, wait, wait, we're supposed to be soulmates. Exactly. So then, so then there's this, that they have to reverse it. And what I found interesting after that was that he doesn't have sex again after that first disappointment. Yeah. And I found that fascinating because it almost seemed to parallel both the religious ecstasy and the sexual ecstasy as a, as a trick or an accident of biology. Something to force you to feel committed to or... And I, I was like, this is, this is, this is interesting. Oh, yeah. I don't know if this was intended, but this is interesting. No, his psychology of, of sex is so different than your average writer. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. In the book Permutation City, uh, it has one of the most agonizingly unpleasant sex scenes ever and I don't mean that it's awkwardly written I mean that it's actually physically painful for the participants even though it's normal sex normal heterosexual sex upping the ante again? yeah pretty much almost basically one guy after fulfilling his obsessive quest because we're so familiar (laughs) with obsessive quests he um, he's uploaded his personality to a pocket universe he has sex with this one woman but his testicle like cramps up and it's just agonizingly painful and it's embarrassing for both of them and after that he kills himself because his quest is done and she gets to discover the body in the bathtub and what yeah no i'm not kidding oh good dear yeah and um 
And but then, okay, so the flip side of that then is Shield's Ladder, which is one of the far future post-human stories. Mm-hmm. And in Shield's Ladder, gender is no longer relevant as a as a as a biological principle because again, yeah. they're all post-human. But when two people get together, um, they grow genitalia that is compatible with each other, okay. and it's different for every pairing. And you can be as promiscuous or not as you as you program your body to be, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's unique to each pairing. But then there's one of my favorite scenes of all of Egan in, is in Shield's Ladder, where a a post-human who's normally embodied agrees to help this post-human who is usually disembodied but has taken on a body kind of for fun mm-hmm. into this whole sex thing. Mm-hmm. And they start to grow the compatible genitalia and the disembodied guy just like falls off the bed laughing. <laughs> Rather than completing the act. Okay. And of course, laughter and mockery are another aspect of sexual pain. Yes. Right. right. And, and I mean, it's a friendly, it's a friendly encounter in that, in that instance. They're, you know, they're friends. It's, it's, and it's still okay afterwards. And literally the disembodied guy's like, oh, I'm really, I'm really sorry. You know, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. <laughs> but, you know, I do have to say that in, in ter- I think we've talked a little bit before about Egan queering gender. Um, gay and lesbian relationships are usually portrayed much more positively than heterosexual sex in in Egan's fiction, which I've, I've always found to be a kind of a kind of healthy, well, not uh, kind of neat, I guess is the best way to put it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even in orthogonal, there's a where the aliens have a biology that that almost makes heterosexuality and homosexuality irrelevant um there's a a relationship depicted that's clearly lesbian that's way more positive than than the heterosexual norm in that culture well there's i i'm i'm hesitant only for one reason why what's the underlying reason for there being more positive is it just accidental or is it something like um well going going back to oceanic there, the, the 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 problem was that he was expecting a level of commitment that she wasn't, and that level of commitment would have included, you know, family and children and being of the same religion and all that sort of thing. And sometimes, when you look at the, especially the futuristic um, depictions of relationships, there's always this idea of where we may be committed, but there's more relaxation to it. So I just I'm just wondering whether it's not just that the heterosexual relationships are portrayed more negatively, but specifically the ones that rely on traditional structures of of full commitment and traditional roles of of spouse and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I don't think that's the case, but I'd have to go back and look. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> it doesn't immediately jump out at me and go, "Why, yes, of course." Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. okay, because that would be interesting, and that, as I said, I'm wondering if Oceanic, the lesson in that, was was part of that as well, where you're almost—it's almost like he's he's being told that the 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 sort of the thrill, of the sexual attachment, which he wanted then connect to deeper things in terms of the commitment and family and marriage and kids was as unnecessary as his attaching the the experience of this biochemical reaction to a deity. Mm. Interesting. I never thought of it that way, but that that's 
That's an interesting way of reading it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is this another footnote? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to think about that one some more. That's really. Okay. But that's really cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, it's it's. It, it is interesting, and and again, because you've given me enough context on Egan, I'm not going to assume that this is actually his stance, because he flips things in other areas. But it would be interesting just to see if, maybe by era or by particular community being depicted, whether there, there are certain trends or, or themes in that way. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a way that I've looked at the fiction. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say, given the book's due in October, I, I, I won't get the chance before it's done, but uh, but that that is definitely something to think about. Oh dear, I'm so bad. I'm so <laughs> it's out of the but, copy editor. I can't change everything now. Okay, it's okay. But in a way in a way that's almost a question for another book entirely. Because we've had we've had a discussion or touched on I should say, I don't think it was a full discussion. The idea that even in the say the Heinlein era, you you had science fiction authors who could be very experimental mm-hmm. uh, in in how they were depicting aspects of relationships and, and gender and sexuality and so forth, but whose what they were writing is not necessarily what they were living or what they were believing. If you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So, so um, sometimes you have to look deeper in terms of how the relationships are being portrayed, not in terms of, okay, they have two women together, they have two men together, or, you know, two genderless people or what, what have you, but to see what, sometimes what the power dynamics are, what the commitment expectations are, and what the community expectations are. Whether these are relationships that slot into a community or are considered very much individual business, the individual's business. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah, and Egan is mostly all about the individual and not about the community. Interesting. Yeah, and especially, like I say, I'm seeing it in Orthogonal now. In orthogonal, in the Orthogonal Universe, which is his current trilogy, uh, book two is out, I think, in September. Um I read it back in March. Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. That was my outside voice. Um, he he grounds the science and the scientists in the community in a way that he hasn't in almost any of his previous novels. But really? uh, it's mm-hmm. still about a lot about individuals bucking society mm-hmm. and changing mm-hmm. it from the inside as opposed to... Sorry, say that again? It's always about the rebel, then. It's always yeah, about the... it's still about the rebel. Okay, okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. And it's and it's an, an approach that is, I don't want to call it common to, to science fiction, but in a way, both science fiction and to a certain extent, even fantasy, epic fantasy, does have this idea of the person who is the outsider or marginalized or... or Gifted in a way that that brings both power and fear in a way mm-hmm. is the one who ends up being the protagonist, or they see the world differently, so they they're always in some way. And I I do enjoy stories like that, but there is always a sociologist in me that wants to see stories about the individual who is rooted in society and plays the rules of society to their advantage. Because there are there's some interesting stories to be told in that respect. Absolutely, and yeah, you're much less likely to see that in Egan. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you can kind of see why. I mean, the scientist, especially in in um, you know sort of dominant Western culture, is considered to be a, an outsider. Um, they're eccentric and they're boring and they're dull and they're geeky and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why would you want to spend all your time, you know, playing with math? Well, even look at the way the science fiction community looks at Egan. I mean, he's notorious for his disdain of, well, not disdain, but his refusal to attend any kind of convention. Whereas uh, he points out, he, you know, people like, he's like, oh yeah, you guys say I'm a hermit, but, you know, I spend my weekends with my friends talking about math. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, your your description could as easily be flipped to encompass the image of the hardcore literary professor. Oh no, absolutely, absolutely right. So it's it's probably not even just so much the subject as the <laughs> the personality, the, the I don't quite want to say the role as an, an artist artistic role as an actor's role, but there's almost I'm actually getting an image of Sherlock Holmes. There's almost this image of this person who is so incredibly brilliant in this one area that they just can't relate to anybody else. Well, we do get back to the obsessive. I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say that almost anybody who would devote the amount of time that Egan's devoted to his alternate cosmology for the orthogonal trilogy mm-hmm. is obsessive. <laughs> I so mean, there is a... Sorry, go ahead. It, it would be possible to write that kind of hard SF without doing all that math mathematical work. I I don't think it's coincidence that a lot of his protagonists are obsessive. So now my question is, does this make Egan, in a certain way, even less accessible because his protagonists do tend to have a particular personality profile? Some people have said that. Actually, oh, was it Matt Cheney who made this point, or was it Martin... Uh, anyway, a, another critic pointed out that if if Egan wants us to believe that all science is understandable by all people, then he should maybe make his protagonists a little more human <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so that the rest of us would believe that we could relate to that person. Mm-hmm. And of course, I actually kind of can relate to that person at least a little bit. So I'm like, hey, what do you mean that person's inhuman? <laughs> Yeah. So no, human really, does seem a bit harsh. Just, just like any fiction, though, how much you empathize with the character to an extent depends on where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yes. I, I because of my background, Egan has always lined up extremely well with my sympathies. Um, mm-hmm. I had the same negative experiences with with deconstructionist philosophy in the '90s. Um, I've had the same experiences with trying to integrate science and art. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had the experience of being the kind of outsider geeky person. Um, Of course, for scientists, I'm the outsider artsy person, so (laughs) go figure. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure he's had that as well. And then then he's addressed motherhood in his most recent trilogy. Mm -hmm. And motherhood, as it relates to being a scientist... At the same time, I've become a mother. So, you know, I mean, it's just his career and my, his career as a writer and my career as both a scientist and a critic have resonated in just amazingly coincidental ways. Cool, cool. cool. Um, but, I, but again, that's an extremely unique set of circumstances. And if some people say, hey, I just don't like Egan, I'm, you know, I can totally see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I would say that my final verdict is um, Egan may not be to all tastes, but he's definitely worthwhile trying out. Okay. That's good. That's good. I, I'm glad you don't feel that, like this whole exercise was just a waste of time. Listen, whenever I have find these many things to discuss, it definitely hasn't been a time. Good, good. Because I knew we had a hit with the Chang, but the yeah, but like I say, Egan is not to all taste, so. And I think I think that if I'd been able to switch off my sociologist brain a bit more, I would I would have been <laughs> I would have been able to be a bit kinder. Right, to, right. So, yeah, and and he I I would say he's he's not a very sophisticated writer when it comes to that kind of um, social nuance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I and I I must say. Boundaries are so strongly drawn in his work, and I'm I'm much more of a you know shades. Oh goodness, I don't even want to use that phrase anymore. I'm much more of a not everything is black and white. It could be this, it could be that. There's nuance here. I'm much more of that kind of person. I want I would prefer a story where you don't tell me from the beginning who's the hero and who's the villain. <laughs> I do understand, yeah. yeah. No, there's there's <laughs> very rarely any question where Egan's sympathies lie. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So and and that does create some some dissonance for me because if I disagree with his reasons as to why the person is the hero, I do end up kind of going okay, I'll just grit my teeth and go along for the ride. Right, right. <laughs> but but no definitely worthwhile checking out and it's one of those situations where you, you may not get the same delight as if you're reading an author who is more 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 to your taste but in terms of understanding the genre as a whole and in terms of appreciating certain techniques of the writing craft he's definitely worthwhile excellent okay so we should probably draw you know draw the close the curtain then on on our specific discussion of Egan yes mm-hmm. and in our next episode i believe we'll be discussing Mary Doria Russell's the sparrow that's right okay. and and we are, you will notice that we're not in fact flipping over to caribbean sf again Part of the fault lies with Egan because we just ended up talking about more of his stuff for longer than we expected. But yes, it is time for us to have a look at The Sparrow. And then after The Sparrow, we will return to Caribbean SF when we look at Ghosts by Cardella Forbes. Right, which I have my copy now and I've already begun reading. So we should be in good shape for that. Yes, beautiful. Excellent. So I hope everyone will join us next week and, um, or sorry, next episode. (laughs) Yes. It's tempting, isn't it? Wonderful. Okay, great. So thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next episode. Bye.